I had a great time in Holland. All the shows were really well attended and met so many nice folks who listened to this show. Thank you guys so much for coming up and saying nice things to me. But I flew home and I was in Nashville for just a couple days and hit the ground running. I had to do a few things for my Pandora show, Country Built, which you can listen to at pandora.com slash countrybuilt. And I got to interview Ray Wiley Hubbard. It was so great to see Ray again and hear his stories. He's got some great ones. Ray's always been one of the best storytellers out there, and it was just great to get to chat with him again. But I ended up having to fly out to Los Angeles. It's the first time I've been to Los Angeles in maybe 10 years. I had one day off, and I was trying to figure out what will I do with my one day off in Los Angeles. So I decided I would go visit some graves. And I jumped in a in an Uber car and went out to a graveyard. They dropped me off. I walked around for about three hours, and I went to Bella Lugosi's grave. I paid my respects to Sharon Tate. I saw Ricardo Montalban's grave. I visited Rita Hayworth's. I even visited Lawrence Welk's grave, and that was a big deal to me because as a kid, I would watch Lawrence Welk religiously, and I remember he would come on just after Hee Haw, and I still watch Lawrence Welk reruns to this day. I really enjoy it. But I was out there for about three hours, and about two and a half hours in, I was really starting to feel the heat. It got up to 100 degrees, and I didn't realize it. So I'm walking around just, uh, you know, feeling really, really haggard. But I found a water hose that I started drinking out of and got rehydrated and called a car and ended up going back to the hotel. But the next day, we went up to Topanga Canyon, and we recorded a session with Ryan Bingham there at his home. And it'll be played on my Pandora show, Country Built. And so you guys keep a watch out for that. I got to meet Ryan's horse, Hatch, which I learned a lot about horses. Ryan knows a lot about horses. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful day. But I flew home, and I'm just going to be here for 24 hours because I have to drive down to Alabama tomorrow. But I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to enjoy being home, even if it is for a short period of time. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Knowles. John is a great guitar player. He's an author and a teacher. And you can find out everything you need to know about John at johnknowles.com. If you missed the last episode where John told a bunch of Chet Atkins stories, I think you should probably stop this right now and go back and listen to that and come back to this episode. On this episode, John told some stories about his old friend, Jerry Reed, and John's had an amazing life, 
and he's been in a lot of really interesting rooms, and he's a generous, kind man who is nice enough to share these stories with us, and I truly appreciate that. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's John Knowles. I remember buying Jerry's records from the very first one and loving them and not having a clue how he was doing what he was doing. And uh, and after I met Chet, I went to his office to proofread a book, and I took my son Jay with me, and Jay and I sang a song for Chet and Shel Silverstein that day, which we called the Gorilla Song. And Chet says to my son, you need to write some more songs. So Jay now is like a real songwriter. He was nominated for a Grammy last year for Country Song of the Year. So he got his encouragement at age five, you know. And, uh, and so I thought, well, if Jay can write some more songs, I guess I can too. And on the way back to Texas, I started writing a song for Jerry Reed, you know, uh, called Red Hot Picker. And, uh, and Jerry recorded it before I met him. And then I met him in Texas at the fairgrounds uh, when he came through to play. Uh, and he had already recorded that song. It hadn't been released yet. And then it, it got released, and it was the title of the album so you go by the, your local record store and they have three copies you know and I, and I so wanted to buy all three you know so but I bought two and I left one for someone else you know <laughs> some of that somebody else should have the same experience I'm having here you know when you're at the fairgrounds and you walk up yeah you just say hey Jerry, no, 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 by I then I talked to his manager Harry Warner had, had taken me back to meet Jerry because Jerry knew who I was by then yeah so he knew who I was through the song and I and I put a bunch of Jerry's licks in it, and, and I I knew that that same character that we've all seen Jerry be in the movies, you know, that kind of cut up, uh, wild and crazy guy. And uh, so I wrote a song, you know, I'm a red hot picker, a hot lick licker. So I forgot I forgot the words now, you know. But uh, he, you know, he tries to get the girl, and and the big brother comes up, and whoa, I can see you're not a music lover. I'm out of here. I'm a red hot picker. I'm a hot hot lick licker. I'm a finger picking. What do you know? I'm a Tom Bob ticker, a real. Bumper stickers, stand back, because here I go. And then, and then you play licks, you know. So I was writing at that rapid fire like Jerry, you know. And, and I realized later on that my, one of my abilities is to, is to assess what somebody's doing and kind of do something like it uh, or that fits in that groove. Now, I also found out later that Jerry wrote most of his own stuff. It was a miracle that I wrote a Jerry Reed song and got it recorded, you know. And then, I've, then I came to town after that, and I thought, this is not how this town works. You don't drop a song in the mail. <laughs> but again, with Chet, you know, you you had it bypassed all the all the ordinary stuff. And so, then later, when I'm teaching at uh, Blair School of Music, when it was over on uh, 18th, you know, House, and about two doors down, there's Jerry Reed's office, and another couple blocks over is RCA. I mean, that's that's when the row was really the row, not all these condos we see now. He didn't show me a lot. He would make me figure out stuff and make me play stuff for him. And then he would tell me if I was right or not. No, not like that. Here, hand me that thing. One time he said, if it was that hard, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> I'd figured out some inside out way to do what he was doing. You know, A lot of what he did was so uh, innovative on the fingerboard. It was all, all very calculated, very laid out. And it sounded... Uh, so complicated and you just couldn't imagine and he said one time uh that when he first started teaching chet some of those instrumentals 
he said it was hard because he said, I wasn't thinking chords, I was thinking lines. So he was thinking moving parts. And Chet was thinking chord shapes, and he said, I had to get him off of those chord shapes and listen to the bass line moving and, the, and all those moving parts. And that's why I couldn't figure out what he was doing either. I couldn't hear, I never heard the chords. And of course, when you see his hand in motion, you know, anybody today can go to YouTube and see him do it. You realize it's, he's spidering all over. He's not grabbing, you know. He'd kind of gotten away from sessions. He was just, I think when I got to town, he had just done that first movie, the WW and the Dixie Dance King. And then right after that, he was out a lot. So he actually let his band go when he was doing the uh, uh, Smoking the Bandit stuff. And then uh, after that kind of settled down, and he reformed the band, so the band that that he kind of worked with, you know, for the rest of his professional life, had not a giant amount of turnover. Uh, but that's the band that had, I think, uh, Buddy Green was in a harmonica and some of those guys, and uh, and they worked with him a lot over. So if you see things on YouTube, that's later Jerry Reed. It's that band, and and a lot of times he would teach them to play uh, his instrumentals because he didn't want to risk him on stage he wanted to you know be the, the guy who was kind of the entertainer guy you know so like mark thornton uh player here in town knows all the instrumentals because he would learn them so that he could play and when jerry would play him mark would learn one of uh chet's parts when they would play the chet and jerry duets are there popular songs that uh jerry reed was a guitar player on in the studio that we might not realize is him i'd, I'd say uh a lot of the Bobby Bear stuff, two or three of the early Elvis, they tried to do them listening to Jerry's demo and nobody could do what Jerry was doing. So they got Jerry in the studio. He played on Guitar Man? Yeah, Elvis's Guitar version. Man and, and uh, Tupelo Mississippi Flash. And I don't know if he played on a thing called, he wrote a thing called Love. And that, I think he wrote five of Elvis's big hits. He wrote U.S. Mail and uh, Guitar Man and, and Tupelo Mississippi Flash. I forget the, all of them, but he, so he played on some of those, yeah. An audio out there that I've heard, that I think it's been on, on YouTube, it's a picture of Jerry and Elvis, where they're in the studio recording Guitar Man and laughing and cutting up. So, so I think, and by that time, uh, as a studio player, uh, Jerry is like really good. He's not just original, he's good. So if he sits down to do that, they get it. You know, it doesn't take 35 takes. And, uh, but... But nobody could do what he was doing. I remember him saying one time that he was at his cockiest when he was that good in the studio. He said, "He said I knew, I knew they couldn't tell what I was doing." He said, "So I just, I just turned around and faced the window so they could see what I was doing. I knew they still didn't know." <laughs> and it's true, you know. <laughs> a lot of that stuff sounded like he was playing an electric guitar straight into the board when they recorded. There's it does that no sound way. that way, doesn't it? I don't know. Uh, uh, Chip Young, I think, recorded him a lot uh, later on when, on his tracks, you know, and then, then Chet recorded him a lot, too. I don't know, but they, yeah, you're right. The, the, the uh, like a Telecaster stuff yeah. does sound pretty in your face. Was he particular about his amps or? Uh, yeah, when he, would, when he would travel. I mean, he, he, a lot of what he used was to a music man that everybody seemed to love about around that time. Chet was playing one, too. He was particular about guitars, but he was more particular about the setup than anything to where it was easy to play. Uh, he played a nylon string 
And I handed him mine one time, and he just thought it was way too hard to play. And I picked up his, and I just—it felt like the strings had been painted on the fingerboard. You know, it was—it was just I could get nothing but snap, rattle, and buzz out of it. And he could get a note out of it, but he could make it snap if he wanted to. So he could kind of dial in with his touch what that sound would be. Did he do his own setups? I bet he did. Yeah. Oh, he had that—that that one guitar that looks like it, the cutaway is just sawed off. I think he sawed it off. <laughs> <laughs> I actually went to Gary Reed's grave about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and I met a guy while I was there that claimed to be his pastor. And um, he told some stories about Jerry telling a lot of jokes during church and cutting up and, uh, and uh, being a distraction that everyone enjoyed. Yes. Uh, was that very much like what he actually was like? Yeah, he, he was kind of that character most of the time. And then every now and then, uh, and Dick Feller and I, who wrote a lot of the songs with Jerry, uh, we're saying that there was another Jerry, which was uh, very calm and very deep and very sensitive. And you know those songs like uh, Today is Mine, A Thing Called Love, those are coming from another place. And uh, and I think he would get that way. I bet you Bobby Bear saw that side of him a lot. Uh, out fishing, you know, when, you know, that Today is Mine is God. When the sun came this morning, I took the time to watch it rise, you know, and that Here's that guy. The darkness from the side. Yes, I yes. how small and unimportant all my troubles seem to be, <laughs> and how lucky another day belonged to me. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the Smokey and the Bandit guy, does it? Uh, that was the theme to the Bill Dance uh, fishing That's right. show. That's right. It was a fishing. Yeah. Was he buddies with Bill Dance? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I remember him uh, being on the show on Bill Dance show, and I seem to remember him calling Bill Dance Willie Two Step. <laughs> <laughs> he had nicknames for everybody, you know. <laughs> He had, I, I have a feeling like half the things we say that are expressions now, Jerry probably thought of them. You know, he was just kind of constantly, you know, making up stuff. And one of the times I remember I went by there uh, and I was talking to somebody and Jerry walks in the back door and all of a sudden he's got me in a headlock and he's doing that thing, you know, you used to, where you, with your knuckles <laughs> on your head, you know, like junior high, you know. He says, uh, he says, come on, we're going to lunch and you're buying and he dragged me out the door, you know. And then we get there, of course, and he buys because, you know. I, I, in fact, I remember that day we talked about uh, the first time we heard Chet play. And he talked about that, you know, being a kid, listening to the radio and hearing that and not knowing how it was done, but knowing that was it, you know. That's the other thing about Jerry. He could sound just like Chet, you know. He just didn't because he knew that spot was taken. Jerry Reed did commercials for Mid-South Wrestling. That's right. Was he a wrestling fan? You know, I don't, I don't I remember that he did that, but I don't know anything about Jerry and wrestling. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me that he would be a wrestling fan. Well, you know, I'll tell you the other thing is, um, everywhere he went, uh, Jerry was in the room and with the people. And, you know, uh, so I remember one time uh, there was a guy fixing the roof at his place, and Jerry drives up sees the guy on with the ladder, climbs the ladder to go talk to the roofer, you know. <laughs> and, and you know, how many people like, who are stars and have been in movies and everything would want to talk to the roofer, you know. He just, he was like a regular guy in, in every, in, in like that in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, it seemed to me like the times I ever went out with him, we would have gone out for a hamburger or something, you know. And I don't remember anybody ever saying anything to us except people in the restaurant who knew him because he came a lot. So I guess, you know, I've heard people in the band 
say that if you'd go somewhere with Jerry and he'd pull over to get a sandwich or something, that by then people knew who he was, you know. They'd be driving the bus and whatnot. And he said one time that they, uh, uh, they were trying to get the bus started. It broke down out of the middle of nowhere. And, and Jerry said, what's, what's the problem here? And he says, we can't get the, he says, he said, here, give me that, give me that CB. And he goes, breaker, breaker, one night, it's the snowman. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of trucks pulled over <laughs> and came to their rescue, you know. So he was not above playing that card if he needed to, you know. <laughs> Imagine when those truckers got home and tried to tell their wife. Oh, yeah. Nobody said, oh, come on. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and they said, one of the guys said, too, it was real late. They were on their way somewhere, and they pulled over after a gig to get breakfast. If, not the Cracker Bro, but someplace like that. You know, it would have been open all night. And Jerry says, nice. I want you to take off all your smoking, the bandit gear, and no hats, no T-shirts. We're going to go in here. We're going to get us some sandwiches. We're going to hit the road. You know, we got to get to the next place, wherever it is. You know, so they go in there, and... Uh, and a waitress comes over to the table, and Jerry says, Honey, give me a couple of those hen-laid eggs, and I'll tell you how I want them. And before long, everybody in the restaurant, <laughs> he could not resist. <laughs> well, I think by the time I knew him, uh, he was making the movies, he was making records. He was pretty busy all the time. Um, if you talk to people who knew him, uh, earlier, that's when you get a lot of the wild, rambunctious stories. And I, I think all that stuff happened back when Jerry was more uh, a songwriter and a sideman, uh, which is a pretty good chunk of time. And uh, and I think that's going to be uh, probably mid-60s, something like that, you know. And the town is pretty small and wilder. And, you know, it's, it seems to me like nowadays everybody's... Not that people don't go out and party, because they do. I mean, it's, it's a crazy town still. But I think the nutty stuff, I don't hear as much about it. Maybe I'm just out of the loop, and, and, <laughs> and it still goes on, you know. But, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the guitar-shaped swimming pool. I remember when Webb Pierce dedicated that to his fans, and um, local television comes down for the 6 o'clock news, and we'd all gotten the word to go to a certain room up high in that, Spence Manor, whatever it is, it's condominiums, and that was a hotel at the time, and watch this television thing because something was going to happen. Sure. So we're all watching, and they're on live TV, and whoever the anchor is is talking to Webb Pierce. And the door opens at the far end of the pool, or the gate, and, and out comes the creature from the Black Lagoon and <laughs> dives in the pool and swims the length of the pool out the other gate and into a waiting car. <laughs> See, that kind of stuff... That used to happen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the I guess the only other thing that I would say that, that kind of caught me off guard was how how much he underestimated himself as a guitar player. Uh, because I think both as a as a player and as a composer, he stands out there totally on his own. There is no 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 precedent for him. Uh, but he was so taken by Chet that he he thought he said now remember one time he said he said now Chet he said there's a guitar player and and uh, he said and then he would say I'm a guitar thinker he said I know how to come up with stuff on a guitar but on the other hand if you just listen to what he did his incredible touch and the the groove he established you know 
the I would say there's a period of time there when anybody who was in Jerry Reed's band had passed an, a huge test to even get to the front door to be in his band, you know. Uh, I think it was uh, Aaron Till told me one time he auditioned for Jerry's band, and Jerry said, well, you're trainable. <laughs> that, that was how he said, I got hired, you know. <laughs> Well, how did Chet talk about Jerry? Oh, he, he thought Jerry was the greatest. And I, he, he liked to talk that way about Jerry, and then he talked that way about Lenny Bro. Just the two, two great guitar players. And, and Chet. Uh, the last time I saw Jerry, uh, Buster B. Jones and I went out to visit him, and he was at his place, and he was... Uh, pretty sick and had oxygen and was in bed but he wanted us to come out and visit you know and um and the first thing he said was he said if either one of you guys makes me laugh and of course then we all laughed you know because he was gonna be hard to laugh with the oxygen you know <laughs> either one of you guys tries to make and then uh, and he said and he said get those guitars out play some tunes for me so we played some tunes some of his tunes and some of our own stuff and just visited and um and what I remember him doing um, was uh, at one point he said, get over here. So I went over and he, he took my hand, you know, kind of like that double handshake like the preacher does when he uses two hands to grab yours, you know. And he says, I just want to thank you for writing my music down and getting everybody out there to play it. And, and I said, and I said, well, you know, you and I, yeah, bah, 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 my turn. Just cut me off. <laughs> and, he, and then he went on to say, you know, he said, I, I didn't think anybody was going to learn to play it when you wrote it down. He said, but you wrote it down, and they did. So I want to thank you for putting my music out there. So I think he knew that was his chance to say thank you. That's the same guy that wrote Today is Mine talking to me at that moment. you know. And so it was a funny thing, and it was a sad thing. And, and uh, Buster and I got in the car and drove away and knew that we wouldn't see him again. you know. Um, but, boy, we were sure glad we'd been there that day. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, my entire life, I've loved that song, Today is Mine. Oh, yeah. Isn't that something, though? But did I tell you something? To know that he wrote that song tells you there's something else going on besides smoking the bandit. Without a doubt. You know. And thank you so much for sharing the stories. It's beautiful to get to see you again. Uh, oh, because it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for being generous enough to share these stories with us. You can find out everything you need to know about John at johnknowles.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. 
Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.